Today we're going to be back in Exodus, and uh, we will, just kind of a scheduling note, we'll be in Exodus uh, until um, the 1st of December, and then we'll have our Advent-type series. And or the Lord comes, uh, or you know something like that. Um, but we'll be in uh, Lord willing, we'll be in Exodus uh, to December, and so uh, we'll take a break for our Advent series, and then we will uh, jump back in and finish in the first part of 2019. Uh, again, Lord willing, uh, it seems like we've taken. I mean, it's been like like Exodus should be over by now, right? Like it's been a long journey to this point, and I I hope it gives you. Uh, joy instead of pain to know that we're only about halfway through uh, the book of Exodus. I hope it's been good for you. I know that it has been for me. I know um, I've said this a million times, but it is encouraging to see the word of the Lord in different places and how the message is the same, how the message is renewing for my spirit. You know, whether it's Exodus or Zechariah or John or James, um, the Lord still finds a way um, easy for him to, to work in my life, and I hope that it's been the same for you. Um, and we're only halfway done, so if it's been good, great. If it hasn't, um, pray that the Lord would open your heart to what has been really good, and um, maybe the rest the second half will be better. Our story today sort of starts a, a definitive turn, though. Um, as a matter of fact, the people of God have come to the Sinai region. This is a, in the third month, so three months after the Exodus, the actual uh, Exodus, and they will stay here in this Sinai region at the at Mount Sinai for the rest of Exodus. As a matter of fact, we don't see of their leaving the Sinai area until Numbers. Numbers notates that they uh, they leave and they move on. So. Um, where they are going to be, this is where they're going to be for the rest of Exodus and our, yeah, and the rest of Exodus. And so it's vastly important. Uh, the Sinai region it was comprised of um, a group of mountain ranges, um, and often we see it called, you know, Mount Sinai. Uh, I think it is talking about the range in general, but it also is specifically talking about um, a specific range that the people of God sort of stayed at. And we can't say 100% where it was, but for many, many years, many people have thought that this mount, mountain range was um, this one specific range. And they called that range uh, Jabul Musa, which means the mountain of Moses. As a matter of fact, in the 1600s, I think, there, um, there was a, um, a monastery built on that mountain, the, the Mount of Moses. It's an 8,000 foot mountain range, um, and which scholars have sort of noted, biblical scholars have noted when they saw it, um, that it was distinct because it looks as if it just comes straight out of the, the ground up to the heavens, not, you know, sort of like a gradual ascent. It comes straight out of the ground from the heavens, and it looks um, majestic in, in manner. And we don't know the exact location of this mountain range, but this is where the people of God are going to be this, in this Sinai area um, for the rest of the book of Exodus. Now our verse today says that Moses went up to God um, as it was the most appropriate way uh, for Moses to meet God. The mountain itself symbolizes the transcendence of God that he is holy, he is set apart, he is unlike uh, any other. 
And so, Mo, and so the people of God being at the foot of the mountain and then Moses going up to God represents the majesty of God and his love for his people to be able to share with them in that. So the mountain was a symbol of how God was holy and how he was majestic and how he would meet with his people. Psalm 36 alludes to this when it says that your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. Today, we're going to look more at the Israelite people at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, 1 through 6. We will look at how God transitions his people from a time of growing or a time of preparing to grow to a time of growing. How he sets out a way, he sets out a pattern for them to be a holy people, a priesthood, a holy nation, a priesthood of believers. Exodus chapter 19 is such an interesting text in the Bible. Many people think Exodus 19, specifically verse, verses 4 through 6, is the basis or the theme chapter for all of Exodus. I would take you further and I would say that Exodus 19, 4 through 6 is really a summation of all God is doing throughout all of, of the, peop- the history of the people of God, from the Israelites to New Israel, to Christianity, to the people of God who are in Christ. The most specific and beautiful thing that we can see from our text today is that God has kept and is keeping and will keep his covenant with his people and that God can be trusted. How do we know that God has won and God has kept his covenant with his people? We see it with a little continuity of the text. Do you remember I pointed out in Exodus 3, uh, Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, the Lord said this to Moses. He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. There was confirmation in Exodus three twelve that Moses was the man of God. One, and that God was going to rescue his people. Two, and that God was a covenant keeper. Three, and the sign was that the Lord would take Moses and the people of God back to Mount Sinai to worship. At first it was Moses worshiping at Mount Sinai by himself. And the promise was made to Moses that Moses would come back. It would be a confirmation that God had sent Moses to be the leader. But it would also be the confirmation that God was a God that kept his covenant. And so now these people are back at that mountain. Just as God had said as it was recorded in Exodus three twelve. After a long and arduous journey, the Lord has successfully brought his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, and back with Moses to worship on this mountain. God keeps his covenant. God saves his people. In doing so, God lays out a plan for keeping his covenant not just with the Israelite people, but throughout the entire world throughout all of time. And what we find is that this passage is specifically, truly, a story of the salvation that belongs to God. As a side sermon, and this is really a side sermon, 
I'd like to propose to you something about God's covenant salvation. There are too many people searching for mountaintop experiences. There are too many people trying to replicate what Moses saw at Sinai, what Paul saw on the road to Damascus. Friends, you need to hear this. There aren't enough Stevens. There aren't enough John the Beloveds. There aren't enough people who are, there are too many people looking for mountaintop experiences, and there aren't enough people fighting in the trenches. And I would like to propose to you today, and that if we have learned, and to show you that if we have learned anything from the people of God in Exodus, is it's that God's voice often resonates most strongly in the valley, in the trenches, more than it does at the top of the mountain. If you become a Christian, or if you've been a Christian for a long time, and you're still waiting on fluffy uh, unicorn cloud, unicorn cloud playland, or if you're still waiting on what some false teacher says is to live your best life now, then you are being set up for failure, or someone or something has set you up for failure. The promises of God are just as true as they are on the mountaintop as they are in the valley. And there's not enough Christians willing to dig down and dig deep in the trenches and say, you know what, I'm not getting out of here. I'm going to stay and I'm going to fight for the Lord. I'm going to stay and I'm going to fight. I'm going to be that person. I'm not going to seek the comfort of this life. I'm going to stay in the trenches. And that is a side sermon only because of the visualization that we have being at the mountain, coming out of the valley, being at the foot of this mountaintop experience that we know Moses is going to have here in a few sermons. So today I want us to look at God's covenant promise that he showed his people. And to look, th- to look and see how it's much more than just a mountaintop experience, but God is prescribing for them a way of living a way to exist that will help them both on the mountain and in the valley. I have one main idea that I would like to uh, give you today, and I've sort of already laid that out for you. Um, And I have a few sort of um, interesting takeaways based on this one idea. And the, the main idea is this. The Lord kept his covenant promise. The Lord has kept his covenant promise. One of the most important takeaways that we can ever have about God is that he is trustworthy, that he keeps his promises. He is worth leaning on, and he's, he's even worth, uh, if you're willing to make yourself vulnerable enough, completely jumping into his arms and trusting in him. Truly one of the most important lessons that we can learn in this life is who God is. Who God is. Because as we find out who he is, we have no choice but to see him as trustworthy. As Christians, when we become saved, we establish this desire. God establishes this desire in us to find out who he is. And sanctification is the process of finding out the truth about God. We grow in God because we know more about God. We will often see that he proves himself to be true, that he's a covenant renewer, a covenant keeper. And even if it takes time, we'll learn to take him at his word. Part of belonging to God is learning that God cannot deny himself, that he is not a liar, and that his good is our good. 
And so today we celebrate with the people of God because they are worshiping the covenant-keeping, victorious king at Sinai just as he promised. Why is, this, why is all of this important, though, for us? Why is the salvation of people thousands of years ago worth mentioning? And how does it relate to us? Let's try to look at that a little bit further. What I think God is showing his people and the world is a pattern for trusting God unto salvation and then trusting God to godly living. I want us to see two truths from, from underneath the fact that God keeps his covenant. I, wanna, I want us to see true, two truths today. One is this. The covenant that he kept was the promise to save them. The promise to save them. The covenant he kept was the promise to save them. Look at verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This is really classic of the Lord right now. He is doing a little back patting. He's patting himself on the back. Well, of course, he is the God of the universe, so I think he might be entitled to do this just a little bit. He's worthy. He's holy. And he's never, he's never been disproven, and he himself always proves himself. He says to his people, I told Moses that you were going to worship here. And now you are here, and you know how you got here? I did it. So be quiet just for a second. Stop grumbling. Let's celebrate a little bit. Let's recognize this victory. How many more times are you going to question me? How many more times will you wonder if I'm there? I did and will do just as I said and say I will do. But God is having more than just a victory dance here, folks. He's also having a covenant renewal. This is a covenant renewal. We know this because he uses formal language here. He uses the formal title, the house of Jacob. Certainly eliciting the memory of his covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and he kept with their father, Jacob, who later became Israel, and they bear now his name. The Lord is reminding them of his promises, but he is also emphasizing their role in this story. The Exodus is God's promise of the unbreakable bond of God's love. The Exodus is God's promise of the unbreakable bond of God's love. God is what the Israelites had been banking on to this point, and God's love is what they had been hoping in. To this point, their relationship with God mainly required them to trust in His love. But soon we will see that with this covenant renewal comes another idea that God is going to hit on, and He has been, but He really will from now until the end of time. And that is that we must, God must be a, a God that we, uh, we must do more than just love. What he brings into play today and what he always has had as an underlying idea is that God is a God that we must also obey. Obedience is required. Yes, love brings us through often, but obedience is what makes us grow in the likeness of our Lord and Savior. Obedience is what makes us more like him. In verse 4, the Lord lays out this storyline 
for what they've witnessed. He said, you yourselves saw what I did to the Egyptians. What was he talking about here? He's talking about the humiliation of the son of Ra, that's Pharaoh, and Ra himself. He's talking about the humiliation of the gods of Egypt. How God defeated the gods of Egypt in the plagues and he left their servants floating in the Red Sea. He said, you saw how I brought you out of Egypt, right? Do you remember what I did to the Egyptians? Then he says something else. He says, you also recognize that I bore you on eagles' wings, it's, it is no wonder that some American at some time chose the bald eagle to be the na- national mascot, so to speak. The eagle is a majestic animal. Many years of going on our leadership retreat, we have actually seen eagles swoop out of the air on this river or whatever this thing we're on, swoop out of the air and snatch fish from the ground. And I'm telling you, if you haven't seen it, the, your, if you've never seen that before live, your first thought is to shout America and, and then, and then to, to rejoice in, in the majesty of what you've seen because the eagle is a majestic bird. Even if you haven't seen an eagle swoop, and I'm sorry if you haven't, swoop out of the air or, or whatever, is that swoop out of the air? And scoop up a fish. Even if you haven't seen the ma- majesty of that, it's, a, it's just a large, majestic looking. Have you, you've, seen them, you've seen pictures of them sitting on a post and, you know, sort of like they're an a exerciser, you know, like a, like a workout dude. They're a gym dude. They're like, I'm an eagle. You know, they know it. They know that they're cool. But an eagle, for all of its majesty, the, the babies are kind of, they're slower of the bird family. An eagle, will, an eagle baby will stay in a nest up to 100 days, which is really a long time uh, for birds. Um, and when the right time comes, the mother will stir up the nest and the young eagles will fly out. And the mother, as, or fall out, whatever. And the, and the mother is sort of hovering around where the eagles have fallen. The mother hovers around where the eagles fall, and she watches because the strongest of the eagles will, you know, extend their wings and take flight. But not all of her babies are ready to fly out. And so the mother will watch, and if she sees or recognizes or senses that a, a baby is struggling, she will swoop down underneath the baby eagle and catch the baby eagle on top of her wings. This is the image This is the image of what the Lord has said He has done for the people of God. He brought them out. He brought them out and He bore them on His wings. What is He saying? Where where does that practically play out for the people of God? What He's saying is, He said, Guys, I know that you were flapping around in the wilderness. I know that when water ran thin and you came to Mara and it was bitter, you were flapping around wondering if you were just going to fall and crash and crumble to the ground. And he said, it was then at Mara that I brought you sweet water and I swooped, I swooped under and caught you on my wings. I bore you up. He said, I struck the rock. I bore you up when water burst forth from the rock. You were hungry and manna came from heaven. I bore you up on my wings. 
the Lord is using the illustration of the eagle to show how he was a provider for his people. How he would care for them gently as they grew. And he would rustle the nest every now and then. And they might experience momentary terror. But they would not be destroyed. He would swoop down and he would rescue them. Then he said something else. He said, I drew you close. I bought you out. I brought you out. I bore you on eagle's wings. I drew you close. The Lord brought them out of Egypt not just to let them wander in the wilderness. He brought them out of Egypt so that they could have communion with him. And for the first time in all of their sort of exodus, they, are, they feel like they're probably really experiencing this. What they're going to experience at the foot of the mountain of God, some faltering, we see it again, but also they're going to experience communion with God, closeness with God. It is a closeness that only comes from experience, experiencing the victory that God has before ordained. We see that this is just for the Israelite people and for us, that it was just a taste of the victory that they would receive. Friends, the Lord is good to his people. But there is something else that the Lord is doing here. He's making a parallel for his people. Remember Paul said that this exodus was written as a lesson to anyone who would read the story. The Lord said he brought them out of Egypt. And that is, for us, we see this now, that is a picture of sin. And how the great God keeps his covenant to save and rescue his people from sin. The great rescue from Egypt was just an image of how God saves his people once and for all from the sin that so easily entangled them. And then crossing over the Red Sea and then again the Jordan, these were symbols of how the rescue uh, from the old life is a refusal to go and uh, leave the new life to go back to the old life. It is submitting to God. It is submitting to Christ as opposed to submitting to a life of slavery to sin. The Lord said, I, I brought you out. The Lord said to, through Moses, you saw what I did to the Egyptians. You saw how I destroyed them. Friends, he does the same thing. We who were once so easily entangled with sin, the Lord destroys sin. The Lord conquered sin so that we can cross the Red Sea, we can cross the Jordan, we can have fellowship with Him, we can be satisfied with nothing less than constant fellowship with Him and never desire that slavery of that old life. We see another parallel. The lifting up or how He bore them on eagles' wings is like God's provision in sanctification. God does not just save, but He constantly provides monumental markers of sanctification. Monumental markers of sanctification. You have those in your life, right? Some of you say, man, I'm glad I'm not who I was in college. Or you say, Man, I'm glad our marriage is not like it was at the beginning. Listen, I love my wife. 
and, I, and she loves me, but I'm glad our marriage is not like it was year one or year three. It was a different type of love. It was fun. It was exciting. But we argued like cats and dogs. We fought all the time. You know, those first early years, like we spent as much time fighting as we did loving. And now we loved each other and things were great. But what I found is I'm going to keep growing and I'm going to keep trying to move towards sanctification. So we have these markers and I don't know what changed. I don't know what happened. You know, it was growth. It was surrendering to the Lord. Changes in personality. You know, surrender in some way. But, you know, we had this, this marker. And I, I look back at that life now and I'm like, man, I loved her then. But I love her now more than I did then. And I'm glad things are not like they were. These markers of sanctification that prove that we're growing. We went to New Orleans last week, as I already said. And I had these, the last time I went to New Orleans was in 2005, and it was also for a Memphis game, and it was for the New Orleans Bowl, and we won, and it was great, and it was fun. But along the way, we had these markers. I had these mental markers. Uh, one of them was um, poppables. Back in the day, <laughs> back in the day, they created this candy out of um, Reese's and York peppermint patties and whatever, and they were called poppables. And we went into a gas station in 2005, and one of my buddies said, oh, look, Popables. And so he did it on accident. He mispronounced Popables. And so now every time I see the word Popables or whatever, I think of Popables. And the whole trip, we made rhymes about Popables. And even subsequently, that's how immature I was. You know, Jesus Christ was born in the stable. I looked in my stocking and found some Popables. Okay, so this is, this is how immature this is how immature that I was. I mean, I was in my early 20s. This is how immature I was. You know, for a year or two, we made, you know, jokes about Popables. And then I'm in this gas station on the way to New Orleans, and what do I see but a bag of Popables. This, this was chips this time. It wasn't actual candy. I don't think they make those anymore, but this was chips, Popables. And so this was a reminder, like all of a sudden emotion, you know, not like crying emotion, but good emotions. And I know it's a surprise that I wasn't crying. Good emotions and happy, happy feelings and happy thoughts came back of that moment in my life. And what we have in our lives is we have these moments. We have these moments of monumental moments of sanctification that reminds us of a time, if if it, nothing else, it reminds us of a time that we weren't as close as we'd like to be and there was a definitive change or a definitive happening in our life that made us draw closer to God. For the people of God, there were these markers, and we see them. These markers were, were Mara, the bitter water at Mara. These markers were the, the water that burst forth from the rock. It was manna from heaven. It was victory over the Amalekites, to name a few. Friends, I, I want to propose something to you. I know that times might have been better in the past in certain ways, but if you don't have markers in your life that make you recognize that life is better now than it was then, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. And you need to get, you need to find out what is wrong, and you need to do something about it as best to your ability. Because sanctification is a progressive process. Yes. Listen, I know that there are things outside of your, ability, outside of your um, power or outside of your ability to take care of, but sanctification is a progressive process. So on some level as Christians, we should look back at these sanctification monumental markers and we should look at our life now and we should say, yep, I see how life is better now than it was then. 
And if it's not, we need to find whatever issue, we need to do whatever we can, we need to be committed to doing whatever we can to solve that. To repent and to believe the gospel, to trust in the Lord, to be in the word of God, to pray, to be in fellowship as often as we can. Because for the Christian, listen, for the Christian, at some point we're going to have to live a life Let me take that back. Not at some point. More consistently, we're going to have to live a life that says, life now, because of the progressive progressive sanctification of God, is better than it was then. And I fully expect it to keep getting better tomorrow. I know that life changes. I know that life is hard. But for Christians, we at least have to have hope that if God is a God that keeps His covenant, if God is a God that keeps His promises... That the things, the conditions, the things that happen in our life are not as overwhelming. They're not as powerful as the power of God to keep his covenant, to keep his promises with his people. The Israelites had these promises. They had these markers. I would propose to you, friends, that if you're being progressively sanctified, that you'll look at your past with a respect as to how it helped mold you. But you will look at your present and your future in a fondness, knowing that the Lord keeps his promises. We look at our past and we see how God brought us through on eagle's wings and how he's still nudging us out of the nest at times. But think about, think about the beauty of that. Think about the beauty of that. Think about when you were at your most desperate. When you were ready to give in. When answers did not abound. Think about the image of the Lord seeing you flailing. Seeing you flapping. Seeing you struggling. And just at his time, swooping underneath you and bearing you up. You've had those times in your life, and he promises many more. And friends, you need to trust that he is a person who keeps his covenant. I brought you out. I bore you on eagle's wings. It's all about the work of God in our life. And then he said, I drew you close. He said, I drew you to the holy mountain. This is a picture of fellowship with God. Friends, salvation and sanctification are wonderful And we have these markers in our life to see the work that God has done in us. We give him glory because it's all about us. But friends, the beauty of salvation and sanctification is not just what God is doing in our life. It's just, it is that it is just a taste, a taste of what is to come. The beauty of being saved by Christ and growing in Christ in the power of Christ is wonderful because it is just a taste of being glorified in Christ. One day, friends, we will be in eternity. Whether we die or whether he returns, whatever comes first, we know he'll return. We know we're going to die. Maybe we won't die because he'll return first. But whatever the case, we will be in glory with God and we will experience on a massively overwhelming scale what the picture of salvation and sanctification brought us on this earth. That's when we are made whole. That's when we will be with God and we will worship Him forever. The Lord is saying to Moses and all who will read, I saved you and I am sanctifying you 
not so that you can roam freely, but so that you would be mine. And he uses some very specific language in our text to denote that we are his and that we have more of a purpose than just being saved and sanctified. We'll look at that in a minute. Exit, friends, Exodus 19, 4 through 6 is vastly important to the narrative of the Bible. In it is laid out a pattern of the salvation of God that he has used for every man, woman, and child that has ever been saved, and he will use for every man, woman, and child that will ever be saved. I brought you out, I bore you up, and I will bring you to me. This is the unbreakable, unbreakable covenant between God and his elect people. One that Paul said was established, he said in Ephesians, was established before the foundation of the world. And we as God's people get to reap the benefit of that covenant. The Lord did not just, friends, he did not just fulfill his promise to save in this, uh, in this covenant. We see at the base of the mountain, it's not just God fulfilling his promise to save But it is God fulfilling his promise to make them a great nation, we saw in Genesis 12. God saved them so that the end result of their salvation would be that he would keep the promise to make them a great nation. Look at verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. There's a very interesting and maybe a confusing point that must be made here. Um, Even if you feel like it's something that, if if you feel like this verse is something that you understand. The Lord said multiple times in the Bible that he is saving the people of Israel in an unconditional way. We see in the New Testament how saving the people of God is an unconditional way. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8 says that the Lord did not choose them because they were more numerous or that it was something about them that was special, but he chose them because he loved them. It was not some intrinsic value that the people of God possessed, but because God loved them. But then today, if, if, if we know, I believe, and I know that the salvation of God is unconditional, And we look at a verse like today, it brings up a little bit of confusion. Because today it looks like, in our verse today, that the Lord is giving a condition to their salvation. They must obey His voice. They must keep His commandment. What is the Lord asking for? If there is a condition here, then let's find out what the condition is. He's asking for absolute obedience to Him. So what God is saying here is that they obey what he is saying without fail or without falter. That they would obey the commands of God that he is going to give him, them, and in doing so, he would keep their covenant. God is literally saying here that in order for anyone to to have fellowship with him, to keep his covenant, they must keep it perfectly. Now, you might look at me and say one of two things. Bryce, isn't conditional, isn't conditional salvation against the traditional Calvinist view? This is you saying that, by the way. And, and as, a good, as a person who understands unconditional election, isn't this contradicting um, to what you believe? Do you believe in unconditional election? I do. Or you might say, well, Bryce, that is impossible to keep God's law perfectly. 
Now, to your hypothetical and sort of whiny way of asking your questions, <laughs> I would say, I would say that God's command is for people to keep His law 100% of the time, 100% perfectly. But that has nothing to do with salvation. That has nothing to do with salvation. This has more to do with how we and they bring God glory than it does how they were saved or we are saved. It has more to do with us being a treasured possession than us being possessed by God. Remember where they are. Remember where they are. The Lord said, you will know what? That I have saved you. That I have sent you to save this people when you worship on this mountain. And then after salvation, he gives them the condition to keep the law. Friends, the Lord, it was never for the people of God in that time and the people of God now. <clears throat> it was never about keeping the law 100% to be saved. It was always about keeping the law 100% to bring God glory and to be a holy nation. The Lord's saying, I saved you, I brought you out, I bore you up, and I called you near. And now all you have to do is hold up your end of the bargain and keep my commandments. Not so that you will be saved, because I have already saved you. It is absolutely necessary, friends, that we understand the order of those things. And the second question that you asked is vastly important. They were to keep the law 100%, 100% of the time. At which you would say, that's impossible. That's impossible. But it was still God's command. It was commanded this way. Here it is, folks. After salvation, they were commanded to keep 100% of the law. It was commanded this way. In order that they would, when they fail to keep the law, that they would look to the lawgiver for help. It was commanded this way so that when God said there's a Messiah who is going to make things right, that they would look to the Messiah in their failure. Failure of self, friends, is the first step to dependence on God. And when they failed, they were forced to seek help. God promised a Redeemer would come, and every time they failed to keep the law, they would wish for that time. They would long for that time. They would look to that Redeemer. Their failure in keeping the law, friends, ultimately, because we know who the Redeemer is, their failure in keeping the law ultimately pointed them to Jesus. And the same is true for you and I. Friends, you're doing a great disservice to God if you try to teach believers or unbelievers that God's standard is anything less than perfection. You are doing a disservice to God because it is at that point of desperation when we say, how can we keep the whole law? How can I even be saved if I can't keep God's commandments for a few days? It is at that point of desperation that we are reminded of a perfect Savior who died at Mount Calvary to be the justification for our sins. He was and is the pleasing aroma to God, the perfect sacrifice. And because he was perfect, he is and forevermore and was, even for the Israelites, the law keeper. Jesus kept the law 100%. 
Whereas Adam brought sin and death into the world with full disobedience, the second Adam, who is Christ, brought life into the world with his full obedience. Friends, we must keep the whole law 100% of the time. And when we, can't, we realize we cannot do that, that is when we turn to Christ and say, keep it for me. Keep it for me. This is dependence. This is dependence on God. This is what dependence on God looks like. Dependence on God shifts a mindset from, well, maybe I can keep it. Maybe I, maybe I can be good enough. Maybe I can keep it. If I just strive a little more, it shifts from that attitude to, Lord, keep the law for me because I can't keep it. And then as you do that, what you find is this progressive sanctification. When your complete trust is in Jesus, the perfect law keeper, the covenant keeper, you find this progressive sanctification. And then it's almost as if it was by accident you start living more and more like Jesus. He gives you the power. He gives you the ability. Man, I wanted to have more time for this. I'm not going to take the time. I'm going to, I'm going to take just a few minutes to, to tell you what happens when we trust in the God who saves and we trust in the God who sanctifies, the God who draws near and makes us more like him. What happens is we realize that we were chosen out from the nations. We were chosen out from the nations. That's just a little point if you want to put that. I didn't put it up here because I sort of added this as the result of God keeping his covenant. We see that we are chosen out from the nations. Chosen out from the nations is a call to holiness. The Bible says, I, the, the Lord said, I chose you out to be a holy nation. I chose you out to be a priesthood of believers. We have talked about this already, friends, but we were chosen out from the nations to live like Christ for his possession. The Lord said, if you keep my voice, if you keep my covenant, you will be a treasured possession. This is literally the treasured possession here. The language is the king's personal gold and silver. The king's personal wealth. This is not something that belonged to the kingdom. This is something that belonged personally to the king. We saw David. It's his, it's his private reserve. We saw David gave of his private reserve of gold and silver in the building of the temple. His treasured possession. It's what God calls us to. He reigns over the whole earth. The whole earth then is his possession because he reigns over the whole earth. But the people who obey and listen to his voice do so because they are a part of the royal reserve. We are called out from the world. We are called out to holiness to be like the Lord. We are called out as his treasured possession. And I want to piggyback on sort of Blake's, uh, the theme behind Blake's sermon last week. And we are, cho we are called out for the nations. We were called out from the nations, but we are called out for the nations. And that's a call to witness. A call to be gospel proclaimers. The Lord said, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. A holy nation. 
They were called out not just as a possession for the Lord to keep, but a possession for the world to see. This is like the Lord opening the door to his vault to the rest of the world and saying, Look, this is my possession. These are my people. (coughs) And the world, and the world is surprised. And the world is shocked by the beauty of the people of God. This is the first call that we see for Abraham in Genesis 12. He says, You're going to be, this is really the first great commission. The Lord says, You are going to be a blessing to all the people on earth. John said that salvation is from the Jews. And through this holy remnant of faithful Jews before Jesus, and now through the blood of Jesus, the Lord has kept a holy nation, not just from the world, but for the world. 1 Peter 2, 9-12 said of Christians, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Why are we a chosen race? Peter goes on to say, That you may declare the praises of him that brought you out of darkness and in to marvelous light. This is the idea that theologians have termed the priesthood of believers. Friends, listen, this is vastly important. The concept is very simple, but it is life-changing if we view our life through this lens. God has pulled us out. He has borne or he has bore us up, however you would say that properly grammatically. He has brought us near in order that we may be priests and pastors in this holy nation, to this holy nation, but also to the world. You're a holy nation, a holy, a priesthood of believers, so that we can lift others within the body of Christ up, so that we can be a priesthood of believers to the world. God keeps his covenant to you. He keeps his covenant to rescue you. And friends, we grow more in sanctification when we take our eyes off of ourselves and fix our eyes on Jesus and our, and our calling and our purpose in him. And our calling is that we would be a priesthood of believers, a holy reserve for him, that he may enjoy for his, he may enjoy for his glory, but we would also be a holy reserve for him that we may share the gospel, that we may be a light to those in the church, and we may be a light to those outside of the church for the glory of the Lord. Pray with me today. Lord, you are good, and you are holy. And Lord, if you are nothing else, that's enough. But you are so much more than that, Lord. You are so much more than just good and holy. Lord, help us to depend and trust and to hope in you. Help us to long for your riches and sanctification. Help us to look at our past, Lord, and not desire to go back, but desire to press on to something new and beautiful and fresh. Help us to trust, Lord, that you are bringing us to a better place, Lord. And even if we can't see it now, Lord, we will experience it then. God, we love you so much. We praise you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.